Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hey parents, Jack and Claire's Children's Boutique in Oxford features the latest brands of baby and children's clothing, shoes, toys, and accessories. Check out Jack and Claire's Facebook page too. Jack and Claire's Children's Boutique, West Jackson Avenue next to Belk. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, and I am coming at you live today from Mississippi Blood Services. Uh, Rhino, safe and sound, back at Super Talk headquarters. We'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Morning, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Well, I've got uh, some good news for you. With respect to the safety of planet Earth, according to MIT professors, looks like we're safe for at least a thousand years from an asteroid that might otherwise impact the surface of our green planet. They say no asteroid larger than a kilometer is likely to hit us in that time frame. But smaller ones still do pose a risk. So I consider that good news to start the day. We are not at risk of impact by a major asteroid. How about that? thousand years. That ought to do it. The um, University of Colorado says that uh, they, they wrote an article, a professor there did, and for publication in, I didn't even know this was a thing, I bet you did, the Astronomical Journal. You ever heard of that? Mm, can't say I have. Astronomical Journal. And they wrote this article, said that there's no impact in the next 1,000 years. About 66 million years ago, scientists believe that dinosaurs were wiped out in part by the impact of a 10-kilometer-wide asteroid. They maintain, according to their research, do scientists that study this sort of stuff, that that 10-kilometer asteroid killed most land-based life in a matter of hours. And it was mainly from uh, molten debris. sort of just rained down on the planet, I guess, with the asteroid en route and then upon impact. That the impact blanketed planet Earth with dust and soot, blocking out the light of the sun, and that caused a decades-long winter. Wow, the climate change folks ought to be happy about that. That's a climate change for you, a decades-long winter. 
fairly rare are such impacts, but we're we're good to go according to MIT and other university astronomers for at least a thousand years. We won't have any sort of impact of nothing larger than 10 kilometers. How about that? So we're good. The Vatican, continuing in the fodder category, the Vatican is investigating a possible miracle. This is quite recent at a Roman Catholic church in Connecticut. It was reported by the Reverend Joseph Crowley, who is the priest at St. Thomas Church in Thomaston, Connecticut, that during communion on March 5th, just a couple of months ago, the number of hosts being distributed miraculously increased. Father Crowley says what happened is our Lord multiplied himself. We Catholics do believe that the unleavened bread that makes up the host that we receive at every Mass does, in fact, represent the body of Christ. It is a reenactment of the Last Supper, according to our faith and doctrine. I'm a practicing Catholic, of course. So this report is now in the hands... I didn't even know of such a thing. Maybe I was uh, taught this in catechism back in my years in Catholic school, and maybe I just forgot it. (laughs) Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. And this is a commission that deals with safeguarding faith and morals and protecting their integrity from errors. That's according to the Vatican's website. So since then, a number of devout Catholics and others have flocked to this St. Thomas Church believing a miracle took place. Wow. That's incredible. So Father Crowley told parishioners what had apparently taken place that day after Mass. He said, we had something happen. It's hard to say, actually. God provides, and it's funny how God provides, and sometimes it comes in a weird way, in a mystical way, in a strange way. That was actually recorded. It's out on YouTube. Father Crowley standing at the altar discussing it, said one of our Eucharistic ministers was running out of hosts, and yet they didn't, and suddenly there were more hosts in the ciborium. That's the that's the cup, you see. Typically it's sort of ornate that is used to hold the host for uh, the priest and the Eucharistic ministers to administer it. Uh, to those in attendance during Mass. He said it's really, really cool when God does those things, and it's really, really cool when we realize what He's done. And it, and it just happened today. Very powerful, very awesome, very real, very shocking. But also it happens, and today it happened. So there you go. We'll see what um, the Vatican has to say about this and whether or not they agree and declare. So I'm assuming... They're going to go investigate by interviewing those in attendance at Mass that day, and of course the Eucharistic ministers themselves that noticed this, and, and uh, Father Crowley. So, pretty interesting. That's something you see every day. You know, we got uh, the president has, uh, of course, said he's running for re-election, and at this point we don't have reason to believe he will not also include... 
present Vice President Kamala Harris on the ticket with him. And they have recently released financial disclosures for 2022. See what you think about this. It showed Biden earned less than $201 in royalties for his 2007 memoir, Promises to Keep. And between $2,500 and $5,000 for his 2017 memoir, Promise Me Dad. Now, that's, of course, in addition to his salary as uh, president. Now, what I don't understand is this between stuff, between $2,500 and $5,000. Why is there not a specific exact number? It lists also, does Biden's financial report, the assets of he and his wife, but only within a range, and the range is between a million and 2.58 million. I find it curious that the range is bigger than the lower end. Uh, pardon me, that the delta between the range is larger than the lower end of the range. That's kind of interesting. They owe between, it's another between. According to the report, the Bidens owe between 250000 and 500000 on a mortgage on their Delaware home, plus between thirty grand and hundred grand on other loans. I mean, that's a $70,000 delta. No big deal. It's not a whole bunch of money. The vice president, on the other hand, reported higher royalties for her 2019 memoir, The Truths We Hold, at more than 41000 she earned more than 40000 for her children's book. I didn't know she had one. Superheroes are everywhere. She earned $456,000 in total income for the year. Of course, she's married to Doug Emhoff. He would be the second gentleman, a lawyer and also a law professor. The report shows that their assets combined amount to between 3.42 and 8.29. That's crazy. That's almost a $5 million delta. They owe between a million and five million on a mortgage. I mean, is it a million or is it five? So I don't get that. But that's what was reported for what that's worth. And this information was released by the White House. By the White House. So I don't know. I couldn't figure out. I mean, no, nobody actually went and prepared it. They did. They're responsible. The individuals, Biden and, and Harris, are responsible. So it's not like a third party did this and reported that. And then uh, that was re- that was disclosed by the White House, released by the White House, and it's it's made its way into the news, and that's where I got it from. So. That's fairly interesting. The Element Well Studios have been relocated to Mississippi Blood Services today. We're here because we need blood. Later on in the program, Angel Gail Lang, Miss Hattiesburg. We've got Congressman Michael Guest at 1105, and of course, Brittany Mitchell, donor resources specialist with Blood Services, is going to be on the program as well. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
are back. We're at Mississippi Blood Services today in Flowood, Mississippi. We appreciate you so much for joining us. We've got, of course, Angel Gail Lang, Miss Hattiesburg, joining us at 10.50. Congressman Michael Guest after the 11 o'clock break. Brittany Mitchell, Donor Resources Specialist with Mississippi Blood Services. Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Sean Cross is a pilot in the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. That's the Hurricane Hunters. So looking forward to those conversations today on middays. Does this surprise you, Rhino, recent report that uh, was conducted on American life? It's the Survey Center on American Life is actually the name of the organization. And it recently conducted a survey to see who's happy and who ain't. It turns out that Republicans are much happier than Democrats. Republican men say they are completely satisfied. 48% of them say that. 42% of women. Democrat men, only 36%. Democrat women, only 29%. Dare I say that's a bunch of Karens? And then just being happier with their lives than liberals. Conservative men, 37%. Liberal men, 21%. Conservative women, 31%. And liberal women, 15 They're just always unhappy, aren't they? I mean, you've said that before on the program. So I caught an article in the New York Times by David Brooks. He's an opinion writer for the gray lady, as it is called. And <laughs> the title of the article, the happiness, in parentheses, or sadness of progressives. This article is about a month old. The happiness or sadness of progressives. And he says that, and again, he referred to this survey that we just discussed a social science research finding that conservatives are happier than liberals <laughs> he ascribes to liberals maladaptive sadness consisting of quote a catastrophic how do you say it catastrophizing i guess so catastrophizing mentality in other words, you, you think everything's a catastrophe. Extreme sensitivity to harm and a culture of denunciation. That's what Mr. Brooks says. <laughs> Maladaptive sadness. Does that sort of mean, and this is what I think it means, and you help me out here, Ryan. Now, I think it means that, that liberals are just not happy about the sort of traditional mainstream roles of men and women in life, right? How dare you refer to a woman as like a housewife or a house mom or something like that? And, of course, they don't like masculinity. 
on the part of males, but just the, just sort of the normal historical traditional roles of men and women they they cannot subscribe to, and therefore they find it difficult to adapt, and maybe they're frustrated because everybody doesn't think like they do, which is that these cultural norms have got to be dismissed. No, I would say maladaptive sadness is just a nice frou-frou word way of saying they never learned how to act like grown-ups they never actually learned coping skills or mechanisms and they've never had anybody tell them no so they're basically spoiled brats pouting on their bed (laughs) oh gosh so mr brooks says conservatives are happy Perhaps it's because they ignore the serious problems in the United States. (laughs) We're happy because we ignore the problems, such as potential environmental catastrophe, widespread poverty, and racial discrimination. They're just not affected by those problems, and therefore they don't care. So, he says, liberals don't share such complacency. And he thinks that complacency is the secret to happiness, that progressives are much more aware of the challenges facing our country. Um, And said that many simply believe that the American dream is a sham. Unbelievable. But he does say that inspires them, the fact that they believe it's a sham, that inspires them to take action, whether it be voting, volunteering for progressive causes, or simply like Mr. Brooks, speaking their mind. (laughs) Unbelievable. So, why are these people so unhappy? And what kind of way is that to go through life? And it's certainly not suggesting that there aren't folks on our side that um, see everything as doom and gloom and catastrophic uh, as well. And and that, I think, should be tempered. And there's a couple of letters to, <laughs> written to Mr. Brooks. Said, um, and this is one that says, He overlooks what the current Republican Party has become. The right wing has taken over the party and determined to make sure that theirs is the only voice heard. Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rest of the extreme right are holding the party hostage, ensuring that unless they agree with whatever the GOP puts forth, nothing will get done. Well, first, I don't believe that the party's being held hostage by the extreme right. And what's missing in that analysis, of course, what the hell do you think is happening with the Democrat Party? All you have to do is listen to Joe Biden every day. And the statements he makes often conflict with statements he made as a sitting U.S. senator on a myriad of issues. And that's because it clearly appears he seeks to appease his far left wing radical base. How could they be so blind to that? Well, it's even worse than that. It's not just that he wants to BS his way into good feelings. It's not just him trying to placate his base. He panders to whatever crowd he is in front of and lies his rear end off about some cockamamie thing that he did 
40 years ago related to them so he can seem empathetic when he's just a lying old fart. It, it, that is so uh, accurate in his commencement address at Howard University over the weekend. I, I think illustrates that, where he said the number one challenge facing the country is white supremacy. And and how could you say and conclude other than you're just pandering to the audience? You're just pandering. And, he's, and he then followed that up by saying, and I'm not just saying that because I'm at an HBCU. <laughs> yeah, you are. Unbelievable. It's hard to be happy when your butt hurt all the time, says Tom in Carthage on the ceasefire text line. Karen in Oxford says superheroes are everywhere. They were giving all the illegal immigrants children when they first opened up the border at the beginning. It has a, a likeness of Kamala in a dress suit on the front. It should have been called my first propaganda book. Oh, talking about her book, right? Superheroes. It caused some scrutiny. We, the taxpayer, paid all paid for all the copies they gave away and whatever profit she made as well. With the pa- taxpayers paid for that, Karen. Hmm. Interesting. Would you feel good each day about deceiving others? Carol and Starkball asks. No, I, I wouldn't. It it would be a miserable way to go through life. Ding 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 I, ding 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 ding. <laughs> And that's why they're miserable. Golly. Points finger really at is. nose. <laughs> so also today, the president and congressional leaders are scheduled to discuss the old debt ceiling problem. Still hanging around out there. More buzz out there, by the way, that the president may invoke the 14th Amendment to address the debt ceiling, essentially pay the nation's bills. But that is a big old legal risk. I don't know if that will happen. But they're supposed to meet today. We will see. When we return, GOP candidate Vivek Ramaswamy and what he wants to do with the voting age. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios at Mississippi Blood Services. We need blood in Flowood, Mississippi. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Great Tom Petty bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We are live at Mississippi Blood Services because we need blood. We're here in Flowood, Mississippi at the main location of Mississippi Blood Services. The Element Well Studios uh, set up right inside the entryway in the reception area. Come by and see us and give some blood as well. Vivek Ramaswamy, GOP candidate for president 2024 
whom I think would be an excellent president. I don't think he has much of a chance to win in this cycle, but I see him eventually doing something big. He wants to change the voting age in this country to 25 and wants to grant exceptions for those 18 to 25 who serve in the military, work as emergency responders, or take and pass a naturalization test. How about that? He says the United States faces a 25% recruitment deficit in the military and just 16% of Gen Z say they're proud to be American. The absence of national pride is a serious threat to our republic's survival. So that may be viewed as somewhat radical to a lot of people, but I'm not so sure it doesn't make sense. He said at a time when young Americans are taught to celebrate their differences, civic duty voting, and in particular the service path, creates a sense of shared purpose and experience. Interesting. He said that um, the Constitution prohibits discrimination based on race and gender. However, it does not, quote, expressly guarantee universal voting. This is intentional. We live in a constitutional republic, Ramaswamy goes on to say. Not a direct democracy. Voting is a privilege, and civic duty is a proper precondition for enjoying that privilege. Of course, this would require a constitutional amendment, and that's a pretty high bar. But that's what... uh, Mr. Ramaswamy is proposing with respect to the voting age. Just when you think you've heard the craziness with respect to the over-sexualization of society, a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine is actively recruiting 30 gender dysphoric males to participate in a National Institutes of Health study on the benefits and consequences of testicle removal. That's also called, I'm going to do my best to pronounce it. You might have to help me out here, Rhino. Orchiectomy? Orchiectomy? I know to me is right, that means remove. Oreectomy? I think that's how you pronounce it. Never heard of that before. And this is um, something being pushed by endocrinologist Sean Iwamoto, chief investigator of the study titled The Effects of Oreectomy, Oreectomy, pardon me, Oreectomy, an age on vascular and metabolic health in older versus younger transgender women. I guess that would be a male who transitions to a female and has their testicles removed in a procedure called an oreectomy. What in the world's going on here? 
What in the world is going on? Meanwhile, at the State University of New York, they're instituting a diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice course into their core curriculum across the system's 64 campuses. Every incoming student will be required to complete and pass a DEI and social justice course in order to attain a degree from the State University of New York. They're the latest in, an, in the long list of institutions that have implemented DEI curriculum requirements into their just straightforward graduation criteria. Rutgers has already instituted such, and so has the entire 23-campus California State University system. It's rampant in this country, this stuff is. But wait, it costs a lot of money to go to school, last time I checked. And we have this issue of people carrying now $1.9 trillion of debt. And much of that is untenable because students have majored in garbage that is not appropriate or would produce skills necessary for one uh, to be gainfully employed. We've just lost sight of what the core purpose of a college education is, which is to, in fact, to, in fact, teach those skills so that students can get a job and produce for society. I was shocked. I didn't get to this and, and teased it yesterday to read about how DEI has engulfed Texas A&M. They are actively promoting DEI ideology through training, programs, lectures, reports, com committees, hundreds of faculty and staff. So, for example, the School of Dentistry, well, that's where you go to learn how to work on the teeth. They hosted a guest lecture by University of Texas Professor Emeritus Robert Jensen. He told the audience during his lecture, this would, these would be students in the dental school, that the United States is, quote, appropriately called a white supremacist society. The School of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M promoted a, quote, 21-day anti-racism challenge so that white students could address their white privilege and white fragility. The College of Geosciences promised to, quote, embed discussion of DEI and anti-racism throughout the college's undergraduate curriculum. And over there at the College of Arts and Science, the sociology department was tasked with implementing a, quote, land acknowledgement statement. That's become kind of in vogue, is it not, Rhino, all these... All these presentations oh, have yeah. to be <laughs> well, The first one that I think we caught was the, the um, COVID-era global Microsoft security event. <laughs> and and the, um, the first 
uh, on the agenda that they uh, that opened the agenda, opened the event with a welcome message. Of course, had to go through the <laughs> litany, the diatribe, acknowledging all the peoples, peoples of whom I've never heard of, that um, once occupied the land where the buildings from whence they were broadcasting <laughs> were situated. The English department at the Texas A&M University, was asked to develop a Black Lives Matter special topics course because I know that prepares you for productive employment upon graduation. The new DEI orthodoxy has resulted in a policy of widespread racial discrimination. Of course it does. Unbelievable. It's exactly what it does. These efforts, all these trainings and workshops and material, broadcasts, speeches, all they do is further aggravate, further divide. It's like the polar opposite of what you want to achieve. You've got Kansas. Now, this is in high school. This was rather disturbing. High school. Female English teacher, been there 15 years. Students are picketing the high school, demanding that she be fired because she spoke up, criticizing the school's, quote, woke ideology and repeated white shaming. And she refused to use chosen pronouns. And these left-wing brainwashed kids are going crazy because she won't address them by their preferred pronouns. Man, what in the world is going on? And I'm looking at photos of the uh, the students picketing, and they're holding up signs. Our schools should feel safe in white supremacy. <laughs> Take action against Sullivan. Unbelievable. We're stepping aside for a break from the Element Well Studios at Mississippi Blood Services. When we come back, it's Angel Gail Lang, Miss Hattiesburg. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone middays live from mississippi blood services in flowwood mississippi joining us now is angel gail lang miss hattiesburg angel thanks for calling in today hello good morning thanks so much for having me absolutely so uh tell us about your relationship with mississippi blood services sure thing so I have a fun and unique relationship, I think, with Mississippi Blood Services, and it's all because of my own personal story. Uh, and today's actually a special day because of that story. Um, my younger brother, Preston, when he was 16 years old, had a rare disease diagnosis, and he was diagnosed with an inoperable grade 5 brain arteriovenous malformation. 
And it was a very long process and journey, but ultimately they were able to shrink that AVM to an operable size. And going into that final surgery, the number one thing Preston surgeon, Dr. Vallier, stressed to us was the risk of blood loss. And his expert medical opinion, if Preston were to never return to us, a bit due to blood loss. And so those words never lost their effect on me, and I wanted to do something about it. So who better to work with than Mississippi Blood Services? Yeah, that's awesome. And so uh, how is Preston today? He's been absolutely amazing. And as I noted, today's that five-year anniversary. So that's a big milestone in his own health journey. Uh, five years ago today, he was under the knife for 10 hours where they removed the entire right frontal lobe of his brain. And in those 10 hours, he received uh, multiple, multiple units of blood. So going back to that day and looking back how far he's come today, if you looked at him, you would never know what he's been through, unless he has a shaved head, for instance, but he's living with no deficits, and it's absolutely amazing. That's awesome. That's good to hear. So tell us about uh, a bit about your background and, and becoming Miss Hattiesburg, and then where you go from here. What are your plans? Yes, sir. So right now I'm preparing for Miss Mississippi, which just is a few weeks away, and the tickets are selling great, and we're all excited to be coming back to Vicksburg, and this will be my second time. Uh, last year was my first time competing at Miss Mississippi, and I never even delved into the pageant world, so to speak, but I came into it because of Preston's story. I wanted to raise awareness for his disease while advocating for blood donations, which is I'm very excited this month we're working together with Mississippi Blood Services in honor of that five-year milestone to try to rally together 5,000 blood donors to pay it forward and I'm excited to share that on the big stage as well at Miss Mississippi Press and Story and what we've been able to gain through it. Yeah. So uh, are you presently in college? No, sir. I actually graduated last year from Mississippi State University with my Master in Business Administration in Project Management. And today I'm actually in my office in Hattiesburg, Mississippi at Jones Logistics where I'm a project manager. Oh, okay. So you're serving as a project manager. So do you yes, sir. Uh, do you intend to uh, become a PMP, or maybe you already are? Is that something you're thinking about? Yes, so that's actually in the plans. Um, currently, you actually have to have six months of project management experience before you can actually take that test. So that's what we're trying to get under our belts right now, but that's in our future plans. <laughs> What what made, just curious, uh, Angel? What made you decide to pursue that line of work? Yeah, so I actually had no idea what I wanted to do after college. I was applying for different jobs. I just knew I wanted a healthy work environment that pushed me beyond my limits and where I was able to learn from top people every single day. And that's something I had the great privilege of doing. I work alongside the president, the CEO, the CFO mm -hmm. on a daily basis. I get to learn from them firsthand while actually also collaborating with people outside of our organization because as a project manager, you're typically seen as a liaison. You're the first face that many people see. So having those opportunities and gaining that exposure, traveling the United States and meeting other businesses and collaborating with them has been the greatest experience. And I think that's what also um, correlates really well with preparing for Mississippi because they complement each other so well. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so so valuable um, are project managers, especially in uh, complex project undertaking. And you're right, you, you tend to become sort of the hub and, uh, and the centerpiece of uh, the projects as they are progressing. And everybody looks to you for the information. 
<laughs> for sure they do, and it's always fun trying to make sure I have all of that information. And I'm one of those people that <laughs> likes to make sure everything's all my ducks on a row. So that's been the best opportunity for me here because I feel like this job was almost made for me, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. So uh, before we go, when's the pageant? It's June 7th through 10th. And actually, you can now go buy your tickets online for individual nights or the whole set. And I hear they're going very quickly, so get them while you can. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a clay shoot coming up in just a couple of days, May the 19th, as yes, I am told. I'll be as there. Well, I'm very so. excited about it. That's awesome. Angel, congratulations. Appreciate you calling in, and uh, good to hear about uh, your brother, and uh, good luck uh, in the Miss Mississippi contest. I appreciate it all so much. Thank you for your time today, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. We're stepping aside for a break. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming back with Congressman Michael Guest to stay with us. to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour two of middays we are once again live at mississippi blood services in uh, flowwood mississippi we're here because the need uh, for blood of course is always urgent and especially now come by and see us they'll take good care of you here you can donate blood and stop by and see us at the uh, super talk set in the mississippi blood services reception area we'd love to see you joining us now is congressman michael guest he represents mississippi's third district congressman how are you today sir i'm great good morning gerard and uh please thank my friends at mississippi blood services for the incredible life-saving work that they do i'm glad to hear that you are uh broadcasting remotely uh from their uh, facility uh and i hope that all of your listeners will please stop by it is so important that we take those few minutes uh to give blood because we know that the huge impact that that has and so thank you for being there calling attention to that today Yes, sir, and we'll certainly pass that on to the good folks here at Mississippi Blood Services. So it's been uh, an eventful few days here. Uh, First, uh, Congressman, let's recognize that this is Law Enforcement Appreciation Week. That's correct. Uh, This is National Police Week. Uh, President Kennedy uh, first uh, proclaimed National Police Week uh, uh, during uh, his term of president in the 60s, and that has uh, uh, concluded uh, and and been part of the the structure of our society ever since. And so uh, May 15th, just yesterday, was a day that we honor uh, those officers uh, who have died in the line of duty. Uh, We were able to uh, introduce a resolution uh, that actually made it to the House floor last night, to uh, to recognize uh, and to pay our respects and tributes to those law enforcement officers who were killed in the line of duty. Uh, last year in the line of duty, there were 224 officer 
others uh, who were killed. Uh, and then there were another 332 who had died previously um, uh, who were recognized uh, and because in some cases uh, their contributions uh, ha- had been lost uh, over a period of time. And so of that list of officers, nine Mississippians uh, were on that list, uh, including uh, Meridian Police Officer uh, Kenneth Croom, uh, and he was mm-hmm. killed last year uh, in the line of duty, uh, shot and killed while responding to a domestic call uh, in Meridian. Uh, and so we want to take this week uh, to uh, pay tribute uh, to remember those that have fallen uh, and then to thank those officers who uh, serve us each and every day. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate your kind words there and, and for getting a resolution uh, up in the House as well. It's it's important. We we are blessed, as you well know, in Mississippi with fantastic law enforcement throughout our cities, our counties, and, of course, our uh, outstanding uh, state troopers of the Highway Patrol, uh, great individuals, great leadership as well. And in Mississippi, unlike some other areas of the country, we support our law enforcement. We recognize for their service uh, to our communities and to our state, and it's important that we take a moment to recognize them. So appreciate that, Congressman. The um, the big news, I guess, in the last 24 hours is the, uh, the Durham report on the Trump-Russia investigation. That was released, and, you know, it just feels like it was a lot of time and a lot of money to, to basically, that was invested in uh, by the government to investigate so-called links between Trump and Russia, uh, a, a massive probe there, and now we're finding out that there's nothing to it. What do you think yeah, about this? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the Durham report came out late yesterday, 300-plus page report, uh, and, and really was very critical uh, of the Department of Justice and the FBI, and rightfully so. Uh, they conducted an operation which they had dubbed uh, uh, Crossfire Hurricane, uh, which was based upon uh, the Steele dossier report and uh, uh, a report that was prepared by Democratic operatives, uh, then given to the FBI and the Department of Justice, and and they use this uh, to go off on nothing but a fishing expedition uh, that ultimately uh, resulted uh, in no findings of illegality uh, as it relates uh, to former President Trump, uh, as they tried to make some sort of connection that former President Trump uh, was colluding uh, with Russia, and uh, and so this report very critical and rightfully. So of the Department of Justice, you know, one of the lines in here, uh, that, and I have part of the, I have the synopsis of the report here. It says uh, that the report uh, concluded that the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law. Uh, and then it later goes on, Gerard, to say FBI personnel also repeatedly disregarded important requirements when they continued to seek renewal of the FISA surveillance while acknowledging that they did not believe that there was probable cause. And so we have officers here who clearly, after being at the early stages of this, according to this report, did not believe that there are probable calls to obtain these files of warrants and continue to have these warrants reauthorized, but they're doing it anyhow. Uh, and so this report, very critical of the FBI, very critical of the Department of Justice, the way that they handled this, uh, and I think that this should serve as a wake-up call. I think many of us were very suspicious of how this had been handled. Uh, we, we were concerned that it appeared that the Department 
Department of Justice uh, had been uh, politicized in this uh, in their investigation of the former president, uh, and clearly this report justifies that criticism. And so I think it's now important uh, that Congress conduct their oversight role that we are required to do, and that uh, the oversight committee uh, the um, led by Comer, uh, the, uh, Jim Jordan uh, and his committee, uh, that they began digging into this and try to get questions of the FBI and the Department of Justice uh, and that we try to put in place guardrails to make sure that this never happens again. It's, it's disturbing that these institutions that our country re- relies on for, of course, law and order, but it, it's also a matter of security and economic prosperity, which cannot be achieved if these institutions are corrupt in this way, not to mention that we can't really have fair elections that represent the wishes of the people. What can we do about this? Like, you guys have the House. I think the average citizen would like to, to know from your perspective, being in, in the majority in the House, what can you guys do, if anything? Well, and you're right. First of all, I think that this report, uh, you know, uh, undermines our, our trust in our democratic system. You know, we want to believe uh, that that our government institutions uh, that they are non-political, that uh, they are doing uh, what they believe uh, is is the right thing, uh, that they are performing their mission uh, without trying to be overly involved in, in any. Uh, uh, supporting one political party or another. Uh, and clearly this report shows that at least within the higher levels of the Department of Justice uh, that there were certain individuals uh, who were politically motivated uh, and, and, and the, the work that they were performing. Uh, and so as Congress, what we can do is we, we've got two things. Uh, with the House, we have the oversight component. And so again, whether you're talking about judiciary uh, led by Chairman Jordan, whether you're talking about the oversight committee uh, led by Chairman Comer, uh, they are going to to dig into this they are going to have hearings they are going to make sure uh, that we are bringing people before congress uh, and that we as a republican congress are are trying to get answers now we expect that uh, at every turn the democrats will try to block that 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 they will try to prevent us from getting answers Uh, but i can tell you knowing both those individuals personally uh, uh, neither comer nor jordan will be uh, deterred by that democratic opposition and the other thing that we can do is we can begin to use the power of the purse. Um, you know, the FBI is wanting a new FBI headquarters that's going to cost billions of dollars. Well, you know, uh, you know, they, they need to justify when, in light of what we see in this report, uh, why they want Congress to expend billions of additional dollars to build them a, a new headquarters. Uh, we need to make sure that if there are individuals within the FBI uh, that are spearheading these types of and politically motivated investigations uh, that we use the power of the purse to remove those individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that uh, people are, are sort of have um, a range of, uh, of thoughts on this, response on this, that, well, I told you, but also mad at the same time. Well, yeah, we knew this was going on, and, and it uh, proceeded, and now we've got the, the truth has been exposed. And, and I think, once again, we're just concerned that it will be done without any kind of consequences and with with uh, impunity. It doesn't feel like, though, Congressman, we're up against a break. I hope you can stay with us another segment. But it, it doesn't feel like that the rank-and-file men and women that serve their country in the FBI – 
are are into this these shenanigans and, and this politicization of the of the department of the agency, but rather this is coming from more the brass that are more politically motivated. If, yeah. uh, if you hang with it, if you hang with us, can you get that on the other side of the segment, Congressman? Yes, sir. Be happy to. Okay, we got a break right here. We're coming right back. Stay with us, Congressman Michael Guest is our guest on middays. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. On Super Talk Mississippi. everyone middays live from mississippi blood services in flowwood mississippi because we need blood so our guest is congressman michael guest we were just talking right before i apologize congressman uh, bumping us up against the uh, the break there with that question uh, about how it seems like the rank and file the, the folks that truly are are committed and dedicated to to serving americans uh, as an fbi agent they're not really the issue here, that this is coming more from maybe top brass that are more in bed with certain political parties, political figures. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for your listeners to make sure that they understand that there is a distinction between the hardworking field agents um, who are assisting your local and state law enforcement uh, in investigating and prosecuting violent criminals, uh, and then those career bureaucrats within the Department of Justice uh, that are led by their political views. And so clearly, uh, we have a, a, di- a different group, different classifications, different buckets, if you will, uh, that we put these uh, individuals in. And so uh, to say that everyone within the FBI, everyone within the Department of Justice uh, is uh, politicizing uh, their role, I, I think that that is an improper statement. Uh, but I think it is, it is a proper statement to say that there are those career bureaucrats at the top there of the Department of Justice uh, who clearly, according to the Durham report uh, and according to the evidence uh, that we've seen so far, uh, do allow those uh, things to, to seep into their decision-making process. Yeah, it's just it's unacceptable. I know you guys know that. I I too have a, a fairly high degree of confidence in uh, Representatives Comer and Jordan, and I hope they get to the bottom of this. I I think uh, there are a lot of Americans out there that want to see some sort of punishment, some sort of consequences. If if for nothing else, not just so much to punish the individuals involved, but to serve as a deterrent to send the message: we can't operate the government this way. 
That's right. And again, you know, this undermines trust in all of our uh, political systems within the United States. And so uh, it is important that uh, these committees work to get to the bottom of it uh, and that we show that there are consequences for these actions. And so, again, I have, uh, as you, uh, great trust in these two individuals who are leading this charge. Uh, I will support them fully, uh, and we will be doing everything that we can to support their efforts to, to really make sure that we're uh, getting to the bottom of what happened and, again, doing our best to hold individuals accountable. Yeah, yeah, good deal. So um, we got this border situation that I know you're quite passionate about. We've discussed that many times on the program. A bill actually passed the House, the Republican-controlled House, last week that does address this issue. And you, you had a hand in the drafting of that legislation. Of course, it looks like it's DOA in the Senate, and you know the president would not sign it even if we could get the Senate to pass it. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, you're talking about H.R. 2, uh, which is our border protection bill. Uh, it was a, a bill that, that actually uh, went through three different committees uh, and then uh, was uh, put together for a single floor vote. So there was a major component uh, that Homeland Security had uh, in the drafting of that legislation. Uh, I, as vice chairman serving on that committee, was very active, involved in that legislation. It was also a component that dealt with the asylum process that went through judiciary led by Jim Jordan, uh, and there was a, a third component that went through foreign affairs led by Michael McCall. Uh, but uh, the the thing that we really focused within the Homeland Security sector is it would increase the number of CBP agents from roughly 18,500 now to 22,000. Uh, it would give uh, retention bonuses to your frontline uh, CBP officers. There would be investment in technology. Uh, there would be uh, uh, support for our local and state partners. Uh, and then we would once again force this secretary to begin wall construction. Uh, uh, and so there was funding in there that could be used only for wall construction, uh, and it would build hundreds of miles or walls of barriers. Uh, and so th- this was very important uh, as we were trying to craft legislation that we sought the input of those frontline officers, made sure that we understood what they needed, and then as a Congress tried to provide them those resources. Um, as you know, I've been to the border multiple times, uh, Was have been there already twice this year. Uh, we continue to have regular briefings uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, with uh, people that are uh, within the Border Patrol family, uh, and we think that this legislation, if enacted by the Senate and signed by the President, uh, would have a dramatic impact in reducing the border crisis that we've seen uh, on the southwest border. 1.5 million, uh, I think is the the figure since he's been in office, right? That's right, year to date. So uh, uh, FY21, it was uh, 1.9, FY22, 2.7, halfway through FY23, we're at 1.5. So equate that out for, you know, what we expect, what those numbers will uh, probably grow from there. So you're looking at 3 million-plus encounters just this year alone, setting a record for the third straight year. You know, and and that doesn't include uh, the gotaways, those individuals that, that we're able to identify by surveillance that crossed the border 
shoulder, but we're unable to apprehend. And so the numbers are staggering. We're seeing now that uh, immigrants who are coming across the border are being given court dates that are four and five years out, uh, and that's the initial court date to appear. Uh, and so clearly uh, our immigration system is broken uh, with uh, more than two million pending immigration cases. Uh, last year we resolved 300,000 cases. So, you know, you equate that out. Uh, I mean, that's a seven-year delay from individuals that come across the border. Uh, it, it can take up to seven years for their cases to be heard. And, and, and so what we've seen is unacceptable, uh, and I think that there's a will within the Republican Party to address it. Uh, and I hope that some members of the Democrat Party uh, will look at what, what's happening and, and will agree with Republicans that this is an important issue, particularly those Democrats in the Senate, which now uh, hold the key to, to passing H.R. 2 uh, and getting something to the president's desk. Yeah, I, this situation, I think this issue is uh, starting to cross over and, and aggravate Democrats as well. Uh, we've seen some protests in, in some of the major Democrat-held uh, uh, cities across the country where citizens are coming out and complaining about the incredible imposition it's putting on them in their communities. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And the Democrats in Congress and the president, and what's even worse, the top of that heap is uh, um, Secretary Mayorkas, they're just in defiance about this. They are. And, you know, uh, and, and when you question Mayorkas, you know, he continues to toe the party line that the border is secure, uh, that we have operational control, uh, even though the chief of Border Patrol uh, recently told us when we were down uh, in uh, the Rio Grande Valley that five of the nine sectors uh, were not secure. And so he is contradicting his own his own Border Patrol chief. And we've seen that uh, the vice president was appointed as the border czar. She has failed miserably. Uh, and this president, during his four Forty-plus years of service, either as senator, vice president, or president, has chosen to visit the border once, and so they continue to ignore. Uh, they continue to spin the situation on the border uh, in, in hopes that things will get better. Uh, but I firmly believe that uh, even though there has been a lull in border crossings over the last week, uh, that we will see those numbers grow exponentially uh, over the coming weeks and months ahead, uh, and we will not be able to handle the surge that will be coming across the border during those peak months yeah let's talk about the debt ceiling that is uh becoming more of a critical matter uh of course the president and four members of congress met last week and then and then we're scheduled to meet again on friday that didn't happen uh my understanding is they're scheduled to meet sometime today what do you think uh, you know, we, we were briefed this morning. Uh, there's been very little progress, uh, while there have been meetings uh, at the staff level, uh, between, uh, all the parties involved. Uh, at this point, there's really been little, if any, progress made, uh, as us being able to find some sort of, uh, compromise, uh, between the House and the Senate and the White House. Uh, and so we will continue to see whether those talks, uh, bear out fruit. Uh, you know, I think that 
as Republicans, particularly Republicans in the House, we feel that we have done our job at this point, that we've passed legislation uh, that would lift the debt ceiling. Uh, and that legislation has uh, will can be considered by the Senate at some point. Uh, but, but, you know, at this point, we feel that uh, it is incumbent upon the administration or the Democrats within the Senate uh, to put some sort of counteroffer on the table. And if they're going to continue to say that their counteroffer is a clean debt ceiling, uh, I think that they will have a very difficult time getting that passed either out of the House or the Senate. And so we should have been doing these negotiations back in February uh, when McCarthy challenged and called upon Biden to do those, but he refused to. And so now we're up against uh, a very uh, short time deadline. Congressman, good to talk to you, sir. Look forward to seeing you soon. Appreciate all your efforts in Washington. Keep it going. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Rod. You have a great day. You too. Coming right back at Mississippi Blood Services. Stay with us. Days with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays. We are in Flowood, Mississippi at Mississippi Blood Services. Coming up next is Brittany Mitchell, Donor Resources Specialist with Mississippi Blood Services, to tell us about what's needed and what the process entails, etc. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, this Durham report is uh, is quite uh, damning, and I think it's ridiculous that the government was to a great extent weaponized institutions within government uh, by political figures and a particular political party, the Democrat Party. I, I do think that that was a burden on the presidency, certainly at a minimum a huge waste of time and money. There was just never any evidence of this Russian collusion stuff. And so think about it. You got the Democrats who say that the Trump only won because of Russian collusion. You got the Republicans who say Biden only won because the election was rigged. And it's why I believe we'll never have another presidential election that is not contested by the losing party. There will never be another situation where I think the losing part party accepts the loss. Uh, Trump said it last week. He said, I'll only accept it if I'm confident that it was fair. But how do you define in his mind what is considered fair? And I, I think you could say that on the other side. If he, if Trump's the, the candidate for the Republicans and he wins the election, Democrats will go crazy again. And they'll, they'll maintain that there was something external that influenced the voting in their favor, in his favor, or some some other form of impropriety that produced the uh, the result that didn't go their way. 
Some folks are telling us, Rhino, that uh, there's some breaking news that Scott Berry, the head baseball coach at Southern Miss, announced he will retire at the end of the season. So that's uh, hot off the press there. Solid yeah, they released coaching. a statement on the uh, Southern Miss baseball Twitter account about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, he's he's been great, I think, for the program. Tough shoes to fill, but I feel like they will uh, they'll make a good decision there. It's, it'd be a good program to uh, to serve as a head coach for for sure. Baseball in Mississippi is really something else. Unfortunately, has not been a good year for Ole Miss in particular, coming off the national championship last year. It hadn't been exactly a stellar year for Mississippi State either, although they did have some success with LSU this weekend. Moe says Gerard of Trump officials did to Joe Biden what they did to him. People would have already been convicted of treason. It's certainly possible. It's a plausible theory. It's it's a double standard. Uh, I don't disagree with that whatsoever. Uh, And I I just think that it's another situation where, unfortunately, most people in the uh, bureaucracies of government, in this Byzantine complex of agencies that we have, they're mostly left-leaning. They just are. I, I can't explain why or how we got there necessarily, but... I, I can't see how you can c- conclude anything else. Do you guys think they will skip a June Social Security payment to retirees? That's an interesting question. That's certainly a risk, and, of course, that would be in the event of a default on the debt ceiling. And it's not that the money is not available to pay the benefits. It's the money that funds the administration system that are responsible for processing the benefits and issuing the checks. Usually that's held up as a kind of a um, a warning more so to motivate um, the members of Congress and the government to get something done to avoid. It's typically not debt default that's a question. This is just kind of a clarification on what we've dealt with in the past it's appropriations it's funding we're running out of money because we our funding bill expires and we've spent it all and we've got to appropriate more money and that's usually how we end up with these last minute gargantuan omnibus spending bills or continuing resolutions which just say hey just keep everything going at the same level from the last time that we passed a spending bill not a total budget because that would also cover mandatory spending, but the discretionary part, which includes the Social Security Administration, not Social Security benefits, which are mandatory spending, but Social Security Administration. At this point, who knows? Uh, It doesn't appear there's been a lot of progress. Uh, The president, uh, I follow his tweets, and of course not him tweeting, but crazy stuff that his people, he is saying, I guess we could attribute it to him, because it does come from his account, um, and stuff that he that he is saying, the, the account is saying, the the, um, the doom and gloom, uh, fear mongering that is embedded in every dead gum tweet about the debt ceiling, and sometimes, though I know nobody reads it, I'll get a wild hair and just tweet back. <laughs> A response to the president's tweet. I did that um, this morning, as a matter of fact. And 
that's uh, that was in response to a tweet he made where he once again is issuing the um, those those uh, dire warnings. The House Republicans wish list would put a million older adults at risk of losing their food assistance and going hungry. Rather than push Americans into poverty, we should reduce the deficit by making sure the wealthy and large corporations pay their fair share. So there you go. It's the wealthy and large corporations are always the target. And then, according to the president and Democrats, it is their responsibility to fund every dime of government. He also said this morning, this is the one that I, I tweeted back a comment to, a default on America's debt would be catastrophic for working families. Eight million jobs gone, a recession triggered, retirement counts devastated, Social Security checks delayed. It's beyond me why MAGA House Republicans would ever think this is an appropriate threat to make. So I tweeted back, it's beyond me why you don't see that out-of-control spending, which is driving crushing inflation, needs to be reined in. You're on track to preside over $8 trillion of deficits, with, with the recent news showing 2023 is going to come in at around $2 trillion. You should agree to reasonable spending cuts that McCarthy proposed. That's my thoughts on it. So, but again, it's the maximum impact of fear mongering and Armageddon, economic Armageddon. That's that's the the messaging that uh, is unfortunately fairly effective when it comes to voting. Gerard, how do we get left wing, says Mose, by hiring people who agree with you. I dealt with the civil service in my military days. If you're looking for a civil service job, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Interesting. Dave says who determines what fair share is. Yeah, we've I agree, Dave. We've we've gone that uh, down that uh, discussion as well. We've had that what's fair? Define fair. They are not spending cuts. They are decreases to the increase in spending. They still increase by 1%. I know, John, we have also discussed that at length on the program. They're just uh, freezing spending at 20, 22 levels and then capping it at 1.5% uh, going forward. And we actually went through the, a rundown of what that would mean throughout the agencies, both in terms of, uh, in the discretionary category, when you say that you don't cut defense whatsoever, uh, as the Republicans have proposed, well, that means that the that the other agency complex would get significant in, incur significant cuts, almost fifty percent uh, for all the other non uh, mandatory, the discretionary agencies within government. So it, it is cuts uh, at the of the current level in implementing that. That's because the one percent does not apply to mandatory spending. So it gets gets a little into the weeds of the math there. Um, but there is, um, yeah, I see it. Um, Jerry in Waynesboro, I see your text there. I'll address that later. 
And I totally disagree with that, by the way. It's just simple math, and it's proven in all the election statistics, Jerry. You can either choose to believe it or just keep on believing that, oh, no, 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 we don't have to worry about anything. If we just had so-called fair elections, we'd win every single time. And that's the concern we should have is that the message from the right is not resonating. It is not producing the majority of the votes certainly for president. That's what we ought to be focused on. Until we do, we're never going to solve the problem. We're coming right back with Brittany Mitchell, donor resources specialist with Mississippi Blood Services. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel. Well, I'll be, I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just a lonely. I could die. Welcome back, everyone. Middays live from Mississippi Blood Services in Flowood, Mississippi. Joining us now, Brittany Mitchell, donor resources specialist with Mississippi Blood Services. All right, Brittany, seems like the last time I was here it was raining. It was, and that is not the case today. Not the case. So no excuse on the weather to come on out and uh, donate blood today. Absolutely. This comes up all the time. And uh, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but what types do we need? I already know the answer. We need all types. Right, exactly. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure that, that, that that was understood. The process is easy. It's quick. It's uh, painless. Mm -hmm. And uh, the doors are open. We're ready today. And also, let's see, what do you get? A T-shirt, right, if you donate May? Yes. This month we are doing a promotion for the entire month uh, where you receive a Hero in Disguise T-shirt. We have, and that's for all locations, and mobile drives. So that's for everyone. We've got two different shirts. We've got really nice black hero in disguise one at our centers flowood cleveland and oxford and then we have a white neon retro kind of vibed one for mobile drops right okay Mm -hmm. and uh then what's going on at flowood and cleveland prize wheel yes so people love people love the prize wheel here at our Flowood Center, so we decided to extend that and kind of see what our donors think in Cleveland this week. Uh, so it's for a limited time. You could win a tumbler, uh, little MBS items, and even a gift card ranging from 10 to $100. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Uh, tell us again about the process. People always want to know what does what the process entail once someone comes to uh, one of the centers. So we get you checked in, check your blood pressure, uh, do your health history, and then we'll sit you down. Uh, and the whole blood process takes about 10 minutes total, but the whole time you're here would probably be about 30 minutes. Yeah. And uh, on your way out, you get little snacks at the oh, snack yeah. bar, right? You'll sit with us for about 10 minutes and hang out, make sure you're feeling all right um, after your donation. Yeah. Uh, and the folks are really nice. I've done it. And uh, everybody's very accommodating, very uh, happy to see you come in and, and donate blood. And I've got some friends that 
like do this on a regular basis you have lots of folks like that don't you we have many regulars yeah become friends <laughs> yeah so how do we get to, how do we, do we expand the base of donors uh, to uh, pump the supply that's what we got to do yep i mean tell a friend um encourage them to come in give it a shot and they'll more than, more than likely come back yeah um so and you got facilities across the state Yes. You want to talk about that a little bit, where all we, we can go? Yes. So, of course, here in Flowood, our Oxford Center, Cleveland Center. Uh, we also have a mobile drives across the state, Tallahatchie General Hospital, uh, which has a prize wheel at it. We also have Grenada City Hall. Uh, that has a prize wheel as well. They'll be there until 4. Uh, Merchant Planners Bank in Raymond until 3. And Sam's Club in Pearl until 4. Walmart in Carthage, uh, Nukes in Meridian until 3, and then South Sunflower County Hospital from 1 to 5. Okay. So what would disqualify a person from being able to donate? There's some some criteria there, but it's pretty. It's not that big a deal, though, for the most part. Right. Uh, medications are probably the biggest thing, so we do just ask that you go on our website at msblood.com and look at our medication deferral list or if you have any questions just give us a call and we'll be happy to help answer but mostly medication yeah Mm -hmm. sometimes uh of course we're sort of i think past the covid era but the question about requiring to be vaccinated and so forth comes up from time to time on the text line tell us about that what are the restrictions if any there um, there are no restrictions. Right. You can be vaccinated or unvaccinated. We do ask, you know, for the sake of our donors and staff, if you're not, you know, vaccinated, to wear a mask. But it's not required. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, we we've kind of moved on beyond that, which is which is good. Uh, anything else we need to know about the process, restrictions, um, and I guess the needs, or, or a better yet, why don't we talk about this? Some success stories, maybe one or two there that you could talk. Because where where does all the blood go? Blood goes to patients throughout Mississippi. And on our website, we have the other side of the bag where we showcase and spotlight a lot of the patients that we work with closely and have blood drives for throughout the state often. Um, but that blood goes to helping them while they're in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you never know when uh, you might need it. Exactly. And almost all of us have uh, had someone in our circle of family and friends that has, and it sure is a relief when it's available. Yep. So y'all come in and donate. No doubt about it. Appreciate that. Brittany, we'll be talking to you one more time in the program. Brittany Mitchell, the donor resources specialist at Mississippi Blood Services. You hear the music, that means it's time for a break. We'll step aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. When we return, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross with the Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. They go looking for hurricanes. Stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are live today in Flowood, Mississippi at Mississippi Blood Services. We thank you so much for joining us. But more importantly, come on down here and give some blood. All types are desperately needed, as you heard Brittany Mitchell, donor resources specialist, just inform us. It's painless. It's simple. It's fast. They give you some snacks and get you out of here in about 30 minutes. Come on down. We need it. So joining us now, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross. He's a pilot with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, also known popularly as the Hurricane Hunters. Lieutenant Colonel, thanks for joining us on Midday, sir. Hey, Gerard. Thanks for having us. We always look forward to coming back and talking to you guys a couple of times a year just to kind of catch up and you know, just see what's going on and let you guys know what we've been up to. It's been all quiet on the home front now, but, you know, season's getting ready to crank up here in just a couple of weeks, so we're ready. Absolutely. So the squadron was uh, established in the 40s, is that correct? Somewhere along that those time frame? Yeah, there's, it's really a, a quite an interesting and funny story. It was sort of like a bar bet. Um, it happened way back in Bryant, Texas, and it was there was a, some Brit pilots training over in Texas, and there was a very com- courageous Army Air Corps pilot by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Joe Duckworth, and they bet him that he couldn't take that T-6 Texan and go out and fly into the eye of a hurricane. So like any courageous young Air Force pilot, he said, yeah, I'll take that bet, and he did it, and he was successful. They went up again, and... He took a meteorologist on the second time, and on that day in July of 43, uh, storm reconnaissance flights were, were born, and, and it's you know worked through the services throughout, throughout the decades, and, and here we are today, and it's all done by the Air Force Reserve right here in the great state of Mississippi at Keesler Air Force Base down on the Gulf Coast. Wow. That's incredible. So um, often, of course, when when you're taking off, when you're departing from Keesler, you don't have to go very far to find them when they're out there in the Gulf. That's true. Sometimes uh, when they're right here in the Gulf, you know, when it's, we've got one that's making landfall, like back in uh, 2018, Hurricane Michael was a very, very intense, strong Category 5 storm. We took off from home base. It was beautiful weather here, and, you know, 35 to 40 minutes later, we were right in the belly of the beast, as I like to explain it, you know, as it was bearing down on Tyndall Air Force Base over by Panama City, Florida. So, you know, when they're in the Gulf, um, you know, they're close to home, and we don't have to go very far, which is nice. It makes it for a short flight for us, but our friends and family members, you know, anywhere from Texas all the way down to the tip of Florida, somebody could be feeling it. So we don't take that very lightly. We don't like it to get in the Gulf. It's kind of like a pinball machine, you know, once it – the ball gets in the in the Gulf of Mexico. Somebody's going to get it. We just don't know who until it finally makes landfall. Where do you have to be, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, to begin collecting meaningful data about a storm? Let's say a large hurricane out in the Gulf, for example. Where, where does the uh, the aircraft have to be positioned uh, as it pertains or as it relates to the storm itself to collect that data? That's a that's a great question, Gerard. And what we do is we've got 10 aircraft here. That gives us the ability to fly three different storms simultaneously around a clock, 24-7 operation. So what we always want to do is have the operation in a position to where we can continue to fly the storm until it makes landfall. Case in point, Hurricane Katrina, there's just a couple of us left that flew in Katrina. I'm one of them. Uh, it made landfall right here, as we all know. So we could not fly the operation from Keesler. So we 
packed up and we moved to Ellington Field in Houston, Texas, which put us in a really good position to be close enough to fly the storm continuously, but also out of harm's way so the aircraft don't get damaged while they're on the ground. So we can operate pretty much anywhere, Gerard. All we need is an Internet connection, uh, a cell phone, and, and a hotel room, and we're we can roll 24-7 and a runway to operate from. Um, I call it a traveling road show because when we go on a road, it's three airplanes and about 65 people to sustain that round-the-clock operation. Wow. So so once you're in the aircraft and you're approaching the cyclone, uh, are you flying through it to get inside the eye or flying above it, staying outside of it and just following it? Uh, how do you operate at that point? What we do is we fly at 10,000 feet pressure altitude, and we punch right through the eyewall. We don't have the performance to go over the top, and even then, that would not satisfy the scientists at the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida. We have to punch right through. It's at that standard millibar level because that's where they like to take all of the readings of what's going on inside the hurricane. And we'll maintain that pressure altitude all the way through. We'll fix the center of the storm, which is the lowest center of pressure, and we'll establish that by latitude and longitude. We'll mark that spot. We'll send all of the data that's collected from the drop sonde, which is the instrument that falls vertically from the aircraft. It's a small tube with a – it's kind of like a flying cell phone, I call it, and it's taking readings of temperature, pressure, winds, and humidity every 10 feet. We take all of that information together. We build our vortex data message. We send it via satellite uplink down to the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida. And from there, they take that information and they plug it into their forecast models, and that's how you see the cone on television when you're watching all the media outlets of where the storm is going to make landfall. That's incredible. Uh, that it really is. So, um, is there danger to the aircraft? I mean, certainly you've got to be careful about how you how you navigate and and just operate the plane once you're inside the the eye. There, right? Uh, yes, sir. It's it's kind of interesting because for Air Force pilots, we're doing the complete opposite of what we were trained. We were trained to avoid weather at all costs. Exactly. And yeah. here we are, you know, flying into the belly of the beast. While we're in route, we have to follow our normal regulations of weather avoidance. But when we get to the storm, the rule, bo- rule book is, short of, is sort of out the window, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we're punching through the eyeball there at 180 knots, which, you know, doesn't sound like it's really fast, but that's our thunderstorm penetration airspeed, which the engineers at Lockheed Martin have calculated to uh, – Obviously, be fast enough to fly the aircraft, but slow enough to cause minimal stress to the airframe. So uh, the plane flex is really good. I can look out the window and see the wings going up and down as we're getting pushed around and stuff. But it holds on, and uh, it's kind of like if you were on an airliner and you hit severe turbulence and your coffee went up uh, and hit the ceiling and came back down in your lap. That's kind of what we experience uh, at times in some of these storms. So, Lieutenant Colonel, you mentioned earlier you were uh, um, in the aircraft and tracking Katrina 2005, 18 years later. How has the technology markedly changed over that period of time uh, as far as tracking these hurricanes, these storms, and collecting data? That's a really good question. Um, we still do things the way they did back in the 70s and 80s and back even back into the 60s. We do have a new uh, piece of equipment on the aircraft. It's, it's called a Smurf Pod. Um, it stands for Step Frequency Microwave Radiometer. It's a lot of big words there for New Orleans boy like myself. But anyway, 
What this thing does, it's out on the wing, and it sends a, a little uh, signal down to the surface, and it's measuring seafoam activity. And with that, it tells us exactly what the wind speed is at the surface. Because that's really, really crucial because nobody cares what the crews are experiencing at 10,000 feet because you guys aren't going to feel that. But we need to know exactly what the wind speed is down at the surface. And it's a really, really great tool. We've had it for about 15 years. We did not have it in Katrina. Um, It would have definitely helped out. But it's an extremely valuable tool. And we also we work with the Department of the Navy a little bit. We've we've had some uh, people on board last, say, 12 years. They've been dropping some different buoys to get some different readings on the storm. They actually dive down to a depth of uh, like 50 meters, come back up, and that gives us a uh, temperature reading at that 50-meter depth. Because you got to think about it, as a hurricane's moving across a large body of water, it's actually churning it up. It's like a giant blender. And the fuel yeah. source is out in front of the hurricane, and that fuel source is the warm water. So the scientists like to know, hey, what's that temperature way out in front? Because from that, they can help predict whether or not the storm's going to get stronger or weaker. Yeah, it makes, makes total sense. So the, the Lockheed WC-130J is the reconnaissance aircraft that's used. Is it specially built? I'm thinking about the airframe and what you mentioned earlier, stress on the airframe. Is it different than the a typical um, aircraft of that style in order to withstand the stress? No, sir, it's not. It is a standard C-130. I can go out into the Air Force inventory right now and grab any C-130 out there and fly it through the eye of a hurricane. The only difference is we've got a little bit uh, stronger set of algorithms that affect the weather radar to penetrate the really uh, intense rainfall and stuff that we get. And then we just have two pallets on board, that one's for the meteorologist on board and one for the loadmaster that deal specifically with the weather stuff. But it's not structurally beefed up at all. It really isn't. That's fascinating, fascinating. Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross has been our guest. He's a pilot in the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, also known as the Hurricane Hunters. Lieutenant Colonel, appreciate you joining us. Very informative, sir. And I'm, I'm hoping that you don't have to go up too often to track storms this season. I hope it's quiet, and I just want to give a good shout-out to the men and women of the 403rd Wing. There's over 1,600 citizen airmen across the country that come here for drill one week in a month, and we could not pull off any of these missions if it wasn't for each and every one of those people that are part of this this unit here at Keesler Air Force Base. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. We're coming right back here in the Element Well Studios at Mississippi Blood Services. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. The unmistakable vocals of Brad Delp with Boston. Bumping us into this segment here on Middays, talking about this debt default, potential debt default. Certainly we're in the throes of discussions in Washington again today. The staffers have been meeting since the initial meeting 
they had last uh, last week, last Tuesday, were scheduled to reconvene Friday, and the staffer said, we need more time, so they rescheduled it for today. And we should be getting an update on that later today, and we'll, I'm sure, discuss that tomorrow. In the meantime, last week, former President Donald Trump urged the GOP to let the default happen if the Democrats don't accept the cuts. That is, um, that's one of those things that's probably a popular position to a lot of people and a very unpopular position to a whole other set of a lot of people. And it just depends on how it affects one personally. If it would cause Social Security benefits to be delayed, that probably make a lot of even conservative people mad that receive and rely on Social Security. Members of the military, for example. And there's some discretion the government has on which bills to pay with the money it has available. Not being able to borrow any additional money doesn't mean it can't meet any obligations, can't pay any bills. It does have some assets, some cash, about $145 billion, which ain't a lot, honestly, relatively speaking. But they could certainly go through a a triage, if you will, to determine uh, what to pay and what not. By the way, at any point in time, Apple Computer has more cash on its balance sheet than does the federal government. So this was the statement Trump made was during the CNN town hall meeting last week where he said, yeah, they just ought to, if they don't get their way on the cuts, which is, was pointed out on the text line, and we've certainly discussed that as well. It's really not cutting the current level of, of spending. It's cutting future increases, which means that we're still going to produce serious deficits and add to the debt. But that's what Trump said uh, last week, which I thought was interesting. So Jerry in Waynesboro, I'm not sure here, Rhino, um, what, uh, why he would want me to fly a mission this year. I hope not as a pilot, Jerry. I probably would not survive that, and nor would they let me in the left seat, of course, to even get to that point. So I hope you're not uh, wishing that I jump in one of these C-130s designed to track hurricanes and cause harm to myself or other people. I am certainly not qualified to do that. Uh, I have had uh, some experience with turbulent weather in my small single-engine aircraft that I flew between 1996 and 2006, and it ain't no fun, uh, no doubt about that. And that's just getting close to thunderstorms and so forth. No fun at all. So great respect for the people that do that in the United States Air Force. Very valuable service, no doubt. But this debt ceiling deal, it's interesting to just watch it because the the um, possibility of reaching some sort of meaningful agreement I think is quite strong, but I, I don't see anything really material from the standpoint of reining in deficit spending uh, even what McCarthy has proposed it's it certainly would be a help in that regard but it it doesn't balance the budget if the 
ideas to balance the budget, you got to go a lot further than that. Just those rather minimal cuts and cuts to future spending aren't going to aren't going to achieve a totally balanced budget. Not even remotely close, honestly. And as we talked about last week, the CBO now says we're on track to produce nearly a two trillion dollar deficit this year in biden's first two years in office he he generated he presided over 2.8 trillion dollar deficit and then brags a lot about only producing a 1.4 trillion dollar deficit last year which of course is 100 percent the result of not passing a bill full of um, COVID relief spending north of a trillion dollars, as he did in the American Rescue Plan. But this year, he uh, I don't know what he's going to say because he likes to run around and brag about going from 2.8 to 1.4. Now he's going back up to 2. What will he say? Will he say anything? Because you certainly can't point to Hey, I reduced the deficit $1.4 trillion. Well, no, you didn't, not between 22 and 23. That's the, the, uh, the trend that we're on presently, the track we're on. There's also some discussion about activating, invoking the 14th Amendment, which just basically says that the government is responsible for paying its debts and uh, it says, shall not be questioned. U.S. sovereign debt, quote, shall not be questioned, is the language specifically in the 14th Amendment. This amendment was adopted after the Civil War, and it really relates to future insurrections and money necessary to quell future insurrections. So some scholars say, yeah, that gives the president the power talking about legal scholars, to order the U.S. Treasury to just keep borrowing money and ignore the debt limit. But that certainly would end up in court if that happened. You can just see where that's going. I don't think the outcome would be very good for that. Hmm. But that's a problem that we got to address. And I think most people, certainly in a conservative state like Mississippi, want to see spending reined in. I agree. They'd like to see a balanced budget. I agree. But when you really dig into what's involved in achieving that goal, not just cutting spending, but achieving the goal of balancing the budget, it's going to take a whole lot more than just working around the edges in, in cutting a few billion here and a few billion there. Not going to do it. Not when you're producing a $2 trillion deficit. Our income, our revenue at the federal level is just north of $4 trillion, but spending is 6 So you'd have to cut $2 trillion, or you'd have to produce tr- $2 trillion more of revenue or a combination of two. But $2 trillion is the number that you've got to, to um, wrestle with to balance the budget in this particular year based on the present financial performance. The Democrats, of course, see the key in the solution being to just raise taxes dramatically. There are not enough taxes out there to get, honestly, to balance the budget. Republicans, of course, 
support cutting spending, but they don't want to touch mandatory spending. That's 70%. That's off the table. They don't want to touch defense. That's another 15%. That's off the table. So you're down to 15%. Well, if you cut the entire 15%, that's only $900 billion only. you got you got another $1.1 trillion to find. So when you start discussing, well, we're going to have to change mandatory spending. Well, at that point, you've just lost any chance you've got of getting elected in either party, in my view. Uh, you know, if you look at home here in Mississippi in, in efforts to eliminate the income tax, I think there's a lot of people out there that would like to see that uh, done. I'm one of them. And they'd like to see it done without raising taxes elsewhere. I'm for that as well. But I've yet to see a workable financial model to achieve that. And that's going to be a key discussion point and debate point, certainly in the um, in the lieutenant governor election. Uh, I think the most people who um, support challenger Senator Chris McDaniel feel that Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman is the exclusive reason why we didn't get Income tax eliminated in 2022. Remember, it never really got to the floors in 2023. They couldn't get it passed in the House. So what we got in 22 was was some income tax reduction relief, but not full elimination. I personally believe that would make it more difficult um, now to fully eliminate income taxes, and I'll explain that why on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 back everyone midday super talk mississippi we are in flowwood mississippi today at mississippi blood services we need donations so come on down um ray in long beach asked a question i don't know the answer to but i will ask Brittany mitchell when she joins us in the next segment blood donation how long can it sit unused before it is no longer viable i'm not sure rhino do you know the answer to that i want to say it's somewhere around 40 days okay we'll ask Brittany about that as well it's a good question so Andy on the ceasefire text line says, "Is if Delbert could arrange the flag ordeal, we could have gotten income tax elimination through the Senate had he really wanted. He doesn't get enough credit for its failure." Well, let's let's be honest about this. Delbert was not the sole supporter of changing of the flag. In fact, the lieutenant governor, 
uh, pardon me, the Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, has been a uh, very outspoken proponent of changing the flag for quite some time uh, before it actually got changed. And uh, I, I would can also say in conversations with members of both chambers, strong support on both sides to change the flag. And that's what happened. So I think just to attribute that exclusively to the lieutenant governor is is not really uh, aligning with the facts in that particular case. With respect to the income tax, there's no doubt that the lieutenant governor opposed elimination of uh, the income tax, full elimination, no doubt about that. I talked to him about it personally. But it's also necessary, I think, to point out there were numerous members of the Senate that had serious reservations as well. It wasn't just the lieutenant governor. And it, it was it spread beyond that. There were members of the Senate. Um, and had conversations with those members and members of the House as well and, and, and tried to even provide some input. They asked for it on a model. The very first bill, you guys recall, that would have eliminated the income tax over, I think, Rhino, three years, something to that effect, and it did have some revenue achievement triggers in it as well, but it was thought it could be done over three years. It included increase of the, of the sales tax. And there was a lot of pushback on that, a lot of um, uh, really visceral rejection to that by the right as well, especially those who are retired in this state that don't pay any income tax. They did not like the idea of raising sales taxes in order to eliminate the income tax. So the House went back to the drawing boards. This was 22, and they, and they produced new legislation, revised legislation, that, in fact, fully eliminated the income tax, but it, it had more aggressive uh, thresholds with respect to revenue achievements, and it was estimated in order for the tax to be phased out. It wasn't just a, uh, a, a one-time, one-fail swoop, boom, we're getting rid of the income tax, effective 2024. As an example, or 2023, that's not the way it worked. It would be phased in, and it was estimated, projected to be phased in over 10 to 12 years, full elimination, without increasing the sales tax. So, for comparative purposes, increase the sales tax, eliminate the income tax, do that in two to three years. Uh, phase out the income tax, don't increase sales taxes. Ten to 12 years, if you're lucky, if you achieve all the various targets of revenue that would have to be along the way to get that done. So that would be a, a, a very tall order, a very difficult task. It also... You remember presented issues in that the municipalities in, in the state largely re, uh, rely on sales taxes for their revenue. And in many of the smaller communities, the chief producer of sales taxes are grocery stores. And um, and so they were concerned about, about that as well, uh, even eliminating the grocery tax. But they were concerned about uh, the sales tax issue as well and how that would affect them. Uh, because that also contemplated decreasing the grocery uh, sales tax. And so it would leave holes in their budget. So we came back and said, okay, we're going to fill that hole up for you, which means that would have to come out of income tax-generated revenue from the state. 
So it's it's a little more nuanced. That's the point. A little more complex and convoluted than just saying, "Hey, just sign here. We can eliminate the income tax, and boom, everything's great." You're talking about half the revenue to the state. So then there are others who would say, "Well, then we need to cut spending." Okay, I I agree with that too. What spending specifically? Well, half of it goes to education. Let's cut education spending. Okay, well, we just increased education spending by $250 million a year in the form of, of uh, teacher pay raises. Okay, we need to cut the administrative cost in education. I'm for that as well. I know Thomas and Greenwood is a big proponent of school consolidation. Others are as well. That's a whole lot more difficult task than I think meets the eye. I'm for that. But that doesn't come nearly close to saving the amount of money to offset teacher pay raises, and you're not done with the teacher pay raises. You're going to have to remain competitive, so it's a difficult deal. Um, It's all I'm trying to point out. I'm not saying it's not achievable. I think some smart people could figure that out, but it's, it's a little more difficult than just waving a magic wand and say, hey, let's just make that go away. Um. So Larry Amaya says Delbert would not support changing the flag. He's a he's a no good liar. Okay, Larry, there are a number of other members of the legislature said the same thing. What about them? Are you holding them accountable as well? What about the governor who said, "Hey, we're going to make sure that the people have a say in this," and that and that didn't happen. And I'm not I'm not faulting them for the action that they took. I supported the change. But let's be honest, just trying to pin all that on one person. It was a lot more than just one person. Uh, let's see. With all due respect, says David and McComb, Hoseman presided over along with Hobson and others the proceeding which rejected the previous vote and denied another in order to keep the – I guess you're talking about the flag, right? Ryan, that's what he's talking about, not taxes. Um. No, it's not assigning sole ownership of the flag to him just that he helped maneuver a complicated issue through the Capitol after the deadline was up. Yeah, I, that's what Andy says. I I, um, I, I disagree with that. I, I, what I disagree with is that it was one person. Now, it is one person that's lieutenant governor that was representing, the, I think, the broad sentiment of the members of his, his chamber, and I think that's also true in the House. Again, Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn was a, a a a huge supporter of changing the flag long before it got taken up and ultimately changed, and and he was not shy about making that known as as his position on that. I appreciate you going over this. I hope they can keep chopping at the income tax, says Ben from Madison. And and so what I'm cautioning of, and I'm seeing this a lot. Uh, and I'm, I'm not promoting one candidate over another here, but I'm seeing this a lot in the McDaniel camp saying, hey, Delbert stood in the way of income tax elimination, and if we elect Chris McDaniel to lieutenant governor, we're going to get rid of the income tax, except they're not telling you the nuanced aspect of it. Like in year one, in year two, over two years, three years, ten years, twelve years, be specific. That's all I'm saying. Be specific. And, and, and I would um, also pose the same sort of question to members of the legislature running for re-election or any candidates running for election in the legislature or any candidates running for um, lawmaking positions, such as a lieutenant governor. Something else that you never see come up that nobody wants to talk about because, it's honestly, it's political suicide is purse. Right now, the way it stands right now, 
the contribution by the taxpayers to the PERS program, the PERS fund, goes up July 1, 2024. Well, that, that means we're spending more tax money on PERS. That comes from the taxpayers. So we're going to eliminate the income tax, but we're going to increase the contribution to PERS. Where are we going to get the money? Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to get into these complicated issues, these thorny issues that don't help you politically. It's no different than at the federal level. Donald Trump says, don't touch Social Security and Medicare. Okay, fine. Then you also support balancing the budget, do you not, sir? How are you going to do that? You're not going to touch 70% of spending. you got 30% over here. I've heard you say it many times. we got to build up the military. And, and I agree with you. And we did. You did. I'm talking like as if I'm having a conversation with Donald Trump. Okay, then what are you going to cut? You could cut the whole rest of government and still produce a trillion-dollar deficit. The whole rest of government, every single agency, just cut them. We don't have them. I don't mean just reduce their spending. I mean make them go away. No FBI, no Department of Justice, no EPA, no Department of Education, no State Department, no Social Security Administration, no Medicare. Just get rid of all of them. You still got a trillion-dollar deficit. Nobody wants to talk in those realistic mathematical terms. Unbelievable. I've heard his commercials, and that's typical. He said, this person says, Delbert says he did all this stuff by himself. He says we, um, I believe, in his commercials, but I, I've, I, it's what politicians do. They always take credit almost exclusively for everything good that happened, but they're never involved with anything bad happens. It's not unique to Delbert in that respect. <laughs> Ben from Madison says, I think you're being more than fair. I don't like the empty rhetoric, but I do want to hear more from the lieutenant governor. Seems like I haven't merged from him. We're coming right back with Brittany Mitchell, donor resources special. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone middays live from mississippi blood services joining us now Brittany mitchell donor resources specialist with mississippi blood services so Brittany, we had a question since you were last on earlier today is how long uh is the blood that is collected how long is it still uh, viable when does it spoil when do you have to discard it how long is it good for um the shelf life for whole blood is two weeks and then for platelets it is only a couple of days like a three-day turnaround so we got to get it processed and sent to the hospitals i got you Mm -hmm. so um how uh how long typically does it sit on the shelf i mean i would think that it comes in it goes out it gets used right it doesn't stay on the shelf very long yeah so that's not as big an issue i mean you typically don't have a problem with Hey, it's been here a while. We don't have any need for it. We've got mm-hmm. to 
and that's why of it. right and that's why we're always seeking oh negative donors oh positive uh there's just such a high need um and usage for those and if you know that you're o positive or o negative please come on and donate today because that's what the hospitals need the most of but of course we need all blood types because they're all necessary right totally understand so uh, tell us again about the process so everybody knows what they can expect if they come down we certainly hope they do because it's not raining today like it was last time we're here there's no excuse beautiful day you got folks here ready to go ready to take care of them tell us about the process all right well you get in the door do your donor history uh we'll get you sat down and it's just a tiny little stick no pain uh the whole blood process takes about 10 minutes and then you go have some refreshments uh make sure you're good to go and that's it takes about 30 minutes uh and you'll save a life you'll save up to three lives and today it's pretty exciting here at our flowwood and cleveland center because we have a prize wheel for a very limited time so when you donate you get to spin the wheel and you can win an mbs item like a tumbler or even a visa gift card ranging from 10 to 100 dollars. and then you get snacks on the way up oh yeah you get nutter butter oreos yep and uh t-shirts yes i almost forgot this is a big deal isn't it yes (laughs) for the month of may we are doing our hero in disguise and you'll get a hero in disguise t-shirt at any of our centers as well as our mobile drives and they're really good looking and they're fun so we want to see it y'all take pictures of it share it on social media tag us use the hashtag hero in disguise we definitely want to be able to share with the community just how important blood donation is and want to see our donors doing it so yeah yeah. So we need people to come on in, and uh, in in the building here is is quite spacious and really nice, well appointed, and you've got the um, the cots, I guess, laying out there, ready for people to just relax. Yep. That's the main process, Kick right? Kick your feet up and just hang out with us for about thirty minutes. So people that are, that may have a little concern about oh the little stick, I mean, there's nothing to it, right? Oh, it's just nothing to it pretty much painless yeah you can't, so. really, can't really do it. <laughs> and the folks that uh do that and then uh take the blood they're just really nice to, to talk to they usually engage with you oh yeah they're the best we've got the so. best team and we we've, we've got other facilities open today as well across the state right yes so of course here at flowood we're our Oxford Center, our Cleveland Center, uh, we're at Tallahatchie General Hospital from 11 to 4, where there is a prize wheel at that mobile. So definitely go and spin the wheel. Uh, Grenada City Hall, noon to 4. Merchant Planners Bank and Raymond from 11 to 3. We'll be at Sam's Club in Pearl from noon to 4 p.m. Walmart Carthage, uh, noon to 4 p.m. South Sunflower County Hospital from 1 to 5, Nukes and Meridian from 10 to 3, and we have a special blood drive for one of our patients, Gracie Gachelle in Vicksburg at Pemberton Mall from noon to 5. So go be a hero in disguise for Gracie and all the other Mississippi patients that need blood. Yeah. Big sort of deal. And and what uh, tell us again what's happening at Flowood in Cleveland? Special prize wheel, right? We have got the special prize wheel for a limited time at Cleveland and Flowood. So 
Gotcha. I heard somebody in here a minute ago said they've got like 26 T-shirts or 32 T-shirts or something like that. They've, they've been and, and uh, mm-hmm. donated blood. Oh, yeah. And uh, received all the T-shirts as part yes. of that. Yes, you, know, you quite collect collection. certain things. This is a good collection <laughs> to have. It's that is really blood pretty services. good. Church, yeah. Mississippi Blood Services, that's where we've been broadcasting middays live from today. That's because, as always, we need blood. So come on down and see the good folks here at Mississippi Blood Services in Flowood, Mississippi, the headquarters, and across all the other locations. You can check all that information out on the website, find out everything you need to know. Appreciate it, Brittany. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. It's always fun. It. That's a wrap here today, folks. Appreciate it. We're back in the studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.